St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. So before we begin, I'm actually going to start with a prayer that is from the Divine Liturgy, but you don't typically hear it. Um, so if you stand for just a moment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Illumine our hearts, O Master, love us mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto you. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and to thee do we ascribe glory to go with thy fathers from everlasting, and then all holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Does anyone recognize that prayer at all? Have you ever seen that prayer before? Yes. Where do you recognize that prayer from? It's on a bookmark. It's on a bookmark? I think I have that bookmark too. Uh, it is the prayer right while well, the Alleluia is starting, right uh, after the epistle reading. The priest moves from the high place to stand in front of the altar, and then the altar boys kind of gather at the high place to make their way out the priest is reading that prayer before the reading of the gospel. Um, you may, if you ever, actually, I was one time caught off guard uh, because, let's see here, uh, when I was up at St. Athanasius, they actually say that prayer out loud, and that really threw me off because the, the deacon was all the way in the middle of the church looking at me kind of going like, come on, I'm like, no, it's your turn. <laughs> it's not my turn right now. Um, I'm going to make, did everyone see the syllabus that we, I have as a suggested syllabus? Yes. Did the, the link? That's okay if you didn't, because I'm going to try and print some right now. Or if not, no, it's not. The printers, we're in a weird situation, the printers. So I'm going to still going to look at it, and if you can pull it up, you're welcome to pull it up from the email. Um, and we just talk just a minute about what we are going to be doing in this class. Uh, so the basic proposed schedule that I have, which w is proposed because we'll see how that goes, uh, because some topics, there's going to be a lot more questions, or I might have more stuff to present on anyways. Um, so for here at the beginning, might be a little heavier than w as we're moving forward, because I like to kind of set up uh, the way to think about the Divine Liturgy. Um, this is the basic book that I think that I will kind of be falling back on, and I also suggest as a helpful thing to be able to read. Um, it is Let Us Attend a Journey Through the Orthodox Divine Liturgy by Father Lawrence Farley. This is not an academic book, so do not think, oh boy, I'm going to have to invest a whole lot of time or something. This is more of a kind of devotional, um, you also pick up on some vocabulary, uh, and particular things that uh, I'll highlight from time to time. I just want to run over a few books because it's helpful uh, no matter where you're at in regards to the church, whether you're uh, an inquirer, just kind of uh, popping in and out, just kind of seeing what the Orthodox Church is like, uh, if you're a catechumen, um, the Divine Liturgy is uh, something worth study. Um, there's a lot of aspects that you can come at the Divine Liturgy, and so these different books uh, can be helpful. There's also, um, for those of us who have been Orthodox through our entire life, uh, you know, <coughs> decades, etc., there are other books that I suggest to read. Um, if you want a kind of historical, a basic introduction to the historical development of the liturgy, because I, I'm here to tell you, I, I've heard that the Divine Liturgy of John Chrysostom was what the uh, Christ and the Apostles did. Uh, if the liturgy is named after a fourth century individual, you can probably guess that the liturgy or the liturgical elements that the early church did uh, maybe has some basic forms as the fourth century. But what we celebrate today is uh, amendments to a basic uh, you can look at the form that's from like the second, first, second century, but by the fourth century, you can see the basic skeleton of the liturgy. 
So this? Sorry, aren't they kind of based on the liturgy of St. James? So there's a lot of debate about this stuff. Um, But so I would say no. Aspects, yes, maybe. So you can even go back to like Justin Martyr, you can see evidence of like the basic skeleton of how the liturgy is. Um, So this is a book by Q. Wybery. He's not actually Orthodox, he is Anglican and served in Jerusalem, so he saw a lot of services. Um, And this will give you a kind of basic introduction. Uh, With a lot of these books, I might always put like a little footnote and say like, don't take this as gospel truth. Uh, this might already be dated in scholarship, or it might just have certain things where you read it and you go, okay, uh, I don't know about that. So just beware, but it is kind of the book if you want a basic introduction to like, what was the Eucharist like in the fourth century? What was the Eucharist like in the time of Maximus the Confessor? Uh, How about after like uh, iconoclasm? It will cover those basic things. Uh, If you are looking for something that can be a kind of devotional slash how to experience the Eucharist. This is kind of a, a modern classic, is Father Alexander Schmemann's uh, The Eucharist. It's something uh, that I'll be drawing a lot upon in this class as well. If you've never read any Schmemann, uh, this is one of the places that you'll be able to get very um, a lot of the basic core points of Schmemann. The other book would be For the Life of the World. Um, if you haven't read the For the Life of the World, I would suggest bumping that up to the next like three books that you're going to be reading. Um, if you have trouble with For the Life of the World, would the Eucharist be helpful for the Life of the World? Yes, because For the Life of the So I have found For the Life of the World sometimes the language can be just not the clearest thing. Um, and he also makes a lot of asides and comments about things that if you don't know like what's going on in early 20th century theology, like in the ecumenical scene, you're not gonna know what Schmemann is talking about. Um, just little things like that. But generally, this is going to be, there are gonna, might be sections where you say, I'm gonna pass this to go to the next section, uh, where he's talking about historical aspects of the Eucharist, uh, or the Eucharistic liturgy, but you're gonna get his basic, so I'll give you an example of just the contents, they're all, every chapter is called the sacrament of something. So the sacrament of assembly, the sacrament of the kingdom, the sacrament of entrance. You can imagine the sacrament of entrance is about the entrance, right, the little entrance. So he might, uh, it's been a while since I've read this. Uh, I'm trying to think if he, yeah, you'll get some liturgical history stuff too, which can be helpful, or you can just pass over it. Uh, this is a book actually written by a Greek Catholic, uh, but he's soaked in the kind of Byzantine rite, uh, and is the wellspring of worship, and it is a little bit more theological uh, as opposed to historical. Uh, I've always found it to be an interesting read. This is kind of a, this is all these books, maybe besides this one, uh, you can always ask me about later about these books. Um, they're all in the syllabus so that if you want to look at one of them, you can just go to the hyperlink. This is a classic uh, book, The Bible and the Liturgy by Jean Danielou, who is a Jesuit, but who does a very good job of capturing uh, the ways in which uh, specifically liturgical life uh, is echoing Old Testament uh, typology, basically. So he'll do a whole, I'll give you an example. He'll do a whole types of baptism, creation and the flood, the types of baptism, the crossing of the Red Sea. And basically, he will read through the fathers and basically give you good, nice quotes from the fathers about those things and the way that they interpreted that. So if you want something that kind of imbibes all of this, that's kind of devotional, historical, uh, and just interesting reading, this is a pretty... Uh, in-depth book by Father Emmanuel uh, Hatsidakis. Sorry, I have to look at the Greek name for a minute. Uh, This is, it can be quite in-depth, and it's also kind of expensive of a book. Uh, 
But this is one of those like, if you don't want to spend money on this and you have like 50 bucks around, maybe this is like 40, I can't remember. You could drop it on this. It'll give you kind of all of the above. Uh, and then there's one other book um, that is, I believe it's under $30, but it's by Harmonk Gregorios from Manathos. Uh, and it's basically commentary on the divine liturgy um, according to the fathers. So it's much more quotes from the fathers, talk commentary, kind of spiritual commentary. Um, part of the reason for having a syllabus and being able to give resources is because I have a lot of people ask me suggested reading things. So it's helpful for me to go ahead and start compiling bibliographies and adding them. So if you want to you know, read at a particular thing about baptism, I can suggest certain things. If you want to read about the Eucharist, there's a few books that I can just offhand say, here you go, you can read these. Any questions or concerns or anything like that? We're going to use the table of contents loosely from Let Us Attend, uh, which basically kind of breaks down the liturgy unit by unit. Uh, because when you're studying the liturgy, you can kind of break it down unit by unit because the form that it's in are units that sometimes came from somewhere else and then just got put in there. Um, so you might start look, seeing these themes in liturgy or in different services where you can say like, oh, that's the same litany from, they just went copy and paste. Uh, you might already realize this, but it's helpful. Uh, it's helpful to know some of these things. You might be like, why, why spend time knowing the history of it? Why spend time like looking at aspects of how things fit together? Because I found in studying those aspects, when I actually come into liturgy, I can actually be present to it in a different way. It's not something, it's something I'm like very familiar with, and I can come to it again in a fresh spirit, kind of like Bible study. You can get really nitty gritty with Bible study, right? And get down with a, you know, an eyeglass and, you know, get really, really, and then you can step back from it and you can kind of appreciate what is going on in a particular way, but you have to put in the time and the energy and the effort into actually studying it. Any questions? Any desires about what the class should cover or anything like that? Nothing? You all are like, whatever you want to do, that's fine. <laughs> all right, so I want this evening for us to begin with the very beginning of the liturgy. And so this actually might be a good question because in the Russian tradition, uh, you can say, okay, they start at 9.30 and I got there at 9.20 and they seem to have already started. So what is going on? Does anyone have that feeling when you first come in? Yes, that's okay, I understand. Uh, so then that kind of question then comes up. I remember by the podcast, there's been a spiritual podcast about somebody talking about his son Sunset 9:30, and they walked in at 9:20, and it already started. He was already mad at his son. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this guy, but I really related to it because it was the see, first if time you, I came here. It's like, am I late? Yeah. No. So if you were in the Greek or Antiochian tradition and they were actually doing Orthros or Matins beforehand, you would be actually quite late in some ways because they start like an hour before uh, divine liturgy. Um, so what? So before. I even take for granted the beginning of the Divine Liturgy. Let me kind of explain just a, for a little bit because I don't want to get stuck here. Um, there are canonical hours. I think we've talked about this at least at one point, just talking about the, the structure of the services. So you can have like your evening prayers, Vespers, uh, Compline, and you can have basically through the day, you have the canonical set hours. I referenced tonight in the talk, right? The, the Jews in the temple had hours that were set uh, the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. Uh, this continues throughout Christianity. Uh, you probably might be more familiar, if you're familiar with like Roman Catholic worship, with the way, like Matins, for example, is a Latin way to talk about Orthros. Um, and I forget the particular names, but like first hour, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour have particular Latin equivalents that if you are used to that kind of background, you'd be more familiar with. Vigil time, first, sixth, or the Vespers time. So, for a vigil in the Roman Catholic Church? That, that's, I mean, the, those are the Catholic hours. I knew this very well. Okay. But, yeah. 
So uh, the Orthodox Church, the Russian tradition, particularly the kind of Slav tradition, uh, is you do the night before vigil. We usually, uh, mostly because we're a little bit smaller, and maybe at some point in the future, you know, God willing, we can relook at just doing Great Vespers and putting a little bit of matins on at the end. Um, but typically, the Russian tradition is to do vigil on Saturday night, uh, vigil for the Lord's Day. Uh, and then afterwards, usually in vigil with first hour. So then in the morning, when you come back to church, you then pick up with third hour and sixth hour. So that's what's being read when you come to church. It usually starts about 9, 10, about 20 minutes before, because it takes roughly 10 minutes for each hour. It's also, sidebar, I also heavily encourage using the hours in private prayer because of what I just said. It takes 10 minutes, and it's a nice thing. It gives you some psalms. It gives you some basic structure. Um, I really like, and the, the, the prayer of the hour, if each hour is also uh, very good. Would you say again, when's matins and when's orthos that you call them? Mat matins and orthos are the same service. Orthos. It's just a different way to call it. We don't typically, if we do a festal vigil here, then we will do festal matins at the vigil. We don't typically serve matins here at St. Anne's. When I say here, I mean St. Anne's. Because you'll find other churches in the Russian tradition that would. No. No. It's Compline is something that we serve during um, Lent, during uh, the first week of Lent. So there is a Compline service. We're not a monastery, so we don't typically do it. So there's great Compline, little Compline. We'll there you go. <laughs> we can go through the whole uh, the hours. Um, so the beginning of the liturgy is. Maybe it's a little dramatic compared to the reading of the hours. It's you, the, the doors are opened, and the priest proclaims, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now endeavored unto ages of ages. Amen. That is the beginning of the liturgy. It is the beginning of the liturgy, and it was... You can tell that the beginning of the liturgy is from... Um, we start, there's very few sacraments or things that occur that start with blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like Vespers does not start with that, right? Vespers starts with blessed is our God, always now and ever and ages of ages. Amen. There's something else recently that we've done that starts with blessed is the kingdom. That's a sacrament. All the, all the sacraments basically start with blessed is the kingdom, if I'm remembering correctly. Baptism starts, well, you have a kind of a precursor to, because the Orthodox never just start somewhere. We always have to do something in front of the beginning and then something after the ending. Uh, but yes, baptism starts with blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, with, which is what's the action that occurs at that time too. So almost everything, there's actions that occur at a lot of points in the liturgy that have symbolic meaning. And sometimes you can see them, sometimes you might not have even noticed it because of other things and orthodoxy is still new and you're getting adjusted. But what occurs when the priest says, blessed is the kingdom? Does anybody know? Do I have really wide shoulders you can't see? <laughs> Do what? So I'm going to give an example. This is a gospel book. This is the altar. The priest picks up the, the gospel book, and there's different ways to do it. Some will do this. Blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like an entrance. And others, this is the way I was taught, is they do a cross over the antimension uh, while they're saying blessed is the kingdom. But every sacrament that occurs has the sign of the cross actually involved in it. I don't know if you've noticed that or not before. Even down in confession, when the priest gives you absolution, he does the sign of the cross over your head with the sole of your head. So, the kingdom, I want to, so we have blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I want to focus on the kingdom aspect of this phrase, because I think it kind of gives us uh, a backbone, as it were, to how to think about the liturgy. Um, well, what do you think liturgy is? Let me just ask that. Because it's one of those words that everybody likes to put a whole lot of uh, weight on, but 
Do you want to hazard a guess? Just ha- guess. Worship. Worship. I like that. Worship. I'm actually going to sit down for a moment. The work of the people of God. Work of the people of God. So that is kind of one of those <laughs> definitions that's sketchy. Uh, liturgia uh, was a public work. It meant like if you were in Rome and you had, unfortunately, they didn't necessarily have the same kind of, unfortunately, I don't know about that. Uh, if you were a, uh, somebody with some means and you needed, you wanted to influence things around you, part of the way that you showed your influence, your, you know, who you were. Largesse. Largesse, thank you. You do what? You build something. You do a public work. You would do your liturgia. You would uh, build a water tower. You would, you know, something like that. Uh, help, I don't know, put the, ba- the, rum- the local baths into the next, uh, I don't know, the coolest thing so that all the tourists come to your town or something. Uh, so there is an element there where there's kind of been a popular etymology of liturgia that's not uh, the work of the people, which is kind of sketchy as an actual. I know it's everywhere. A lot of people say that, but it's, it's sketchy. So. I heard it on a podcast. You heard it on a podcast? Yeah. And it was Bless a, their heart. It was a panel, and Father David was on the panel, and some of the guys were having a good time saying, it's the work of the people of God, and Father David's going, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, that always, all of a sudden, I've seen that that seemed to become really popular when, like, liberation theology started becoming really popular. Uh-huh. Catholic circles and stuff, and uh, the, from what I heard, that's kind of when that really took off. I could I could see if it wasn't liberation theology, then it would be the the liturgical renewal movement of the like early twentieth century, uh, where. I mean, if you come into an Orthodox church, it seems, especially if you're used to the the modern Roman Mass, it seems like you just really step back in time. Because if you go to a modern Mass, the priest has definitely not got his back to you. That's one thing. Uh, he's definitely not hiding behind doors. Hiding, I put, you know, <laughs> scare, you know, he's he's very accessible. Everything is visible, etc. Uh, and that's something that we can talk about aspects of the liturgy from different points about how uh, Orthodox liturgy uh, is still rooted, kind of what I was saying tonight, in uh, it's definitely w- rooted in Jewish worship and temple. And it is rooted in uh, more than you might think, well, it depends on how you think about it, but more than you might think scripture, that the reason why the priest has his back to you is not because he's busy doing something else. Uh, it's that he's actually supposed to be leading. That's the idea. He's leading and he's facing God with the people. Because as we'll see in a moment, hopefully, yeah, we're going to get there. We're going to get to Moses this, today, <laughs> tonight. Uh, that there is a particular leader or someone who is set apart to be able to lead the worship or to lead the people to kind of be, uh, in some sense, mediation. Because everyone, if you think that you have unmediated access to God, you're kidding yourself. Yes, you might have some unmediated access to God, but who taught you about God? Did you just pick it up? while you were walking around one day, like suddenly I know about who Jesus Christ is and I know, no, you either, maybe you got it from a Gideon Bible. Did anyone get Christianity from a Gideon Bible? I always find that fascinating that I I don't see evangelism working by, here, I'm going to give you a book that's really hard to decipher (laughs) and I'm going to let you figure it out and you're going to, like sometimes God can work through that. I've never seen it to work out that well uh, and maybe you have some great stories otherwise. Uh, but typically somebody, you know, showed you how to like approach scripture, think about who God is, share with you their own experience of God. And then you're kind of, if that was your parents, it's your parents, it was your uncle, your aunt, whoever, somebody mediated, or it was kind of a, uh, sent by God, if you will, or witness to God. So we're always traditioned and kind of brought into God. So I want us to um, think about this phrase of blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, What is the kingdom of God? And that might actually help us define liturgy actually a little bit. 
The kingdom of God is the church. We have one definition before us, the church. Any other definitions? Isn't it just God's dominion over all things? I like that. God's dominion over all things. Where we're at. Do what? Where we're at. It's right here. It's at least accessible right here. Yes. So. And filling all things. Yes. So we can look at this in different ways, right? The kingdom of God is something that we all can access, right? Uh, I keep on kind of referring back to the talk I just gave, partly because I think I was riffing off of this, what I prepared more than I thought. Um, <laughs> we all, um, the kingdom of God is something that was, if you want to go back to go to Adam and Eve, they were walking, talking, active in the kingdom of God. You can say the kingdom of God to and kind of integrate these things. The church is a place where the dominion of God is supposed to be exercised. Um, that can always be a little muddy. I don't mean the divine human institution that is the church, but like us as people who make up the church can be a little bit of a mess. Um, and it's always accessible. God's rulership or his kingdom, right? His kingship, his lordship. Uh, Adam and Eve had direct access and communion to that kingdom, right? That's how Genesis seems to depict them. In some ways you could depict Adam and Eve as uh, kind of a classic way of breaking this down is that they were king and queen of their domain, right? God put them as the crown of creation. That's why Genesis operates the way that it does. All these things are created and then he uh, creates man and woman. He says, you know, let us make, they're in our image, uh, God speaking to God. Uh, you have man and woman. You have them as king and queen of creation. You could also say they're kind of um, called as kings to steward over the creation, right? They were to tend the garden. Uh, what else were they, what did Adam do in the garden? He named all things. You could kind of look at that almost like a, a prophetic ministry in the sense that he spoke the truth of the way things, of creation by pointing them out, naming them. Uh, you'd also say that he operated as a priest because he also uh, gave offering of thanksgiving to God. And this is actually kind of all tied up and then in what happens of what everything goes wrong, right? They are dwelling in paradise in a place that was prepared for them. They're even you know, walking in the cool of the evening. Does anyone remember the Protestant hymn? And he walks with me and he talks with me. That's a really sappy, strange hymn in some ways when you really think about it. It's like every funeral. It, no, yeah. That was your dad's favorite hymn? Oh, yeah. I think it was my dad's like second yeah, favorite you hymn. You were talking about how I was introduced to God. I was walking in the woods with my dad singing that hymn. That hymn. So, that, that, so if that gives you good thoughts and memories, great. So that was what it was like, uh, you know, walking with God. There was, okay, I'm sappy. I'm not you're sappy? Sure. It doesn't offend, it just reaffirms. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was full uh, concord. There was full uh, communion. There was full access. The kingdom was uh, active upon the earth. Because, and there's one aspect I want to kind of underline here. Adam and Eve, they are the crown of creation because, not only because they are the king and queen of creation, it's because they're also the link between the, um, the kind of celestial world or the heavenly world and the created world, right? Uh, man is made a little lower than the angels, so angels are uh, creatures above man, but man is also somebody, uh, by man I mean mankind, humanity, uh, is someone who has been given a particular vocation that the angels never had. Things that were revealed to mankind and the whole of what God has and planned for his creation, angels are just uh, part of, I don't want to say the machinery because I don't like the image of a machine, but like 
they're a part of how this is all going to happen, but this is not about them. They're here to serve us. Uh, they're ministering spirits, flame ministering spirits, right? So when Adam and Eve uh, break beyond, they, they kind of, well, they abdicate their rule to Satan because they believe something that's not true because they want, what, what is it that they want? What do they think they're going to get? Knowledge, power. power. They're going to be gods. Wouldn't that be great? Unfortunately, that was not really the path that God had for them to become gods. Uh, and but what, what, you're like, well, become gods. Uh, there is uh, an understanding in the Orthodox Church, especially in you can read it in the Psalms because you have uh, this language. We do not become God. We'll use this kind of language for it. We do not become God with a big G, right? That's absolutely no. <laughs> we are not uncreated. We are not a part of the triune Godhead. We're not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we did not create ourselves, right? We, we did not exist from, from ever, from always, unto ages of ages. <laughs> we, that's not us. We're created. However, like Adam and Eve, we were called to be in communion with him, uh, and to live forever, to become like little g gods, to reign with him, uh, that we are co-enthroned with him, that we are co-workers with him, all this kind of language that you can find in Paul and throughout the New Testament and also in the Old Testament too. Um, part of the reason I want, uh, I'm starting here in Genesis is because um, I find in the Orthodox Church when we talk about things like liturgy and other things that we tend to skip over scripture for some reason and we start talking about, we're already talking about like uh, Jesus and we kind of assume that you know who Jesus is, but I don't know uh, in this day and age uh, if I can always assume that we're all coming to Jesus with the same kind of lens, right? Like uh, Jesus can look like all sorts of people uh, to different people. There's a great quote. Um, it goes back to Albert Schweitzer, who was uh, kind of, if you want to look at one of the beginnings of the kind of modern historical Jesus research, uh, where they're basically saying, there's got to be a real Jesus under all of this kind of pious mythology and uh, miracles and things, so we got to scratch down and get to the real Jesus. Uh, and he has this saying about Jesus that he, he's somebody that all sorts of people study him for this historical Jesus, and it's like they're looking down uh, the bottom of a well and what they see at the bottom of the well is actually their reflection but they think it's Jesus right so you can find somebody like uh, if you go to Barnes and Noble and start looking up Jesus books you're going to find that Jesus was a revolutionary who probably would have hung out with um, oh, Che Guevara or something like that uh, you would find that Jesus there was this one in the 70s that he tripped mushrooms uh, and that's what the apostles and Jesus were tripping on mushrooms. So therefore, mushroom. that I, I saw one that he was a mushroom. That he was a mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> you can find anything at Barnes and Noble, apparently. Uh, so mushroom of the cross was an extremely popular book in the seventies or sixties. In, 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 in the early seventies, yeah. And it was written by a biologist. By a biologist. It was, yeah, it was he must have been sampling the goods. <laughs> So, no, no, this is serious. <laughs> I think I read it, but I was too stunned to remember. <laughs> so, they're, they're, the, the Orthodox Church does not obviously think that the apostles were tripping and had kind of like uh, a resurrection experience, man. Uh, they, the, the Orthodox Church approaches this through the, um, the experience of the liturgy and the saints and it's historical reality that occurred. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been apostles who laid hands on such and such and such. Like, there's historical roots to this. Um, and so the Old Testament, and actually trying to approach these things through uh, the scripture that the apostles would have read, that Jesus preaches out of, uh, helps put in context uh, a lot of these things. Uh, and scriptures uh, are liturgy assumes that we know scripture. I think I'm going to sound like a broken uh, record at some point because I feel like in the past year I've, I've said that a lot. Um, 
but it's true. It, it assumes that you know scripture. So if you come to vigil for a feast and they're singing about the three holy youths in the furnace, if you don't know scripture, you're like, what are they talking about? Three holy youths in the furnace. Um, and so, you know, Habakkuk, um, Habakkuk is how I said it when I was growing up in Arkansas, Habakkuk. Uh, there is, that assumes that you know these aspects of the prophets, the Old Testament, uh, why something like who we're commemorating uh, tonight, uh, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, uh, and his wife Elizabeth, and then all of the echoes that you see in the New Testament with him. So, Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Melchizedek, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was years. I heard that for years before I finally decided. I wonder who that was. <laughs> Does anyone know who Melchizedek is? Because that works into what we're trying to he's work on. He's the priest of Zion. Uh -huh. The king of Zion. Yes. He's the Salem. King. Salem. 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 King of Salem, yeah. A priest. Why, why is it important that it's not Zion and it's Salem? Um, what does Salem mean? Peace. Peace. Shalom. Yeah. Salem. The king of peace who comes out with what? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. And then, so then it's fascinating too once you get to the New Testament and Paul is making arguments about Melchizedek. He's like, who is this guy? <laughs> he comes out of nowhere. He's the king of peace and he's bringing bread and wine? It's like he was given a tenth of the spoils. And he's given a tenth of the spoils. Therefore, this is the whole argument that Paul makes. It's kind of like uh, Lord of the Rings fans with who's Tom Bombadil. Oh, because he gets cut out of the movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom Bombadil. He's a weird guy. Yeah. He has strange powers. <laughs> you must listen to him on stool. Yeah, I do actually. <laughs> no, because they just did a three-hour episode on, on Wow. So, uh, <laughs> which was really good. <laughs> Melchizedek. So, uh, for example, I saw the OCA Church in Pittsburgh. In the altar, there are uh, in the Old Testament there are so many Eucharistic references and places where you can see. Uh, where God is feeding the manna that from heaven, the angels' flesh, basically what the angels eat on the angels' bread, uh, that it's the presence uh, of God, that he will dwell with us. Uh, you get all sorts of, you know, that he's feeding us uh, from heaven, and he also gives us flesh in the evening with the doves. Um, Except on Wednesdays or Fridays. Yes. <laughs> But you get with somebody like Melchizedek in this OCA church in Pittsburgh, in the altar area, they have a, a lot of Old Testament um, scenes, and one of them is Melchizedek, because it's an obvious, uh, the way that we read scripture, that that is a Eucharistic reference. Um, so when we look at uh, what happens to Adam and Eve and their fall, fall their, their basically breaking of communion, what happens to them? when they uh, do what they're not supposed to do, when they reach out to become gods on their own, when they decide that they're going to have their own truth, uh, when they decide that they're going to believe the lies of this serpent. They're evicted. They're evicted. They have to work. They have to work. That's part of the curse. The man has to work. And what is the, what is the woman's curse? Pain and childbirth and something else. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Um, so this is what I'm trying to get at. Liturgy is a very serious punishment. Uh, the kingdom is lost. It is that kind of resting with God in the shade, you know, in the glade of Eden has been broken. And so you can read the Old Testament, and even when Jesus comes and he, uh, the main content of his preaching is what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Same with John the Baptist, right? The kingdom is among you. It's in your midst. It's happening now. The return of our path back to Eden in Jesus Christ. But all the Old Testament is preparation for that. Uh, all the Old Testament is preparation uh, for Jesus, uh, but it's also in the way that the Orthodox Church thinks for the Virgin Mary, for um, who becomes the latter. We can talk about once we hit a section of the liturgy talking about the Theotokos uh, as the bearer of God or as kind of uh, a temple or ark of God. Um, 
it prepares the way for Jesus, but also prepares the way because the, the fathers, uh, they don't just read it as uh, being able to see Mary and Jesus in the Old Testament. They see all the, the church uh, and the rites of the church and what the church offers. The sacraments of the church are all throughout uh, the Old Testament. So when we look at even uh, Cain and Abel, just to put this in, this I, I pulled out my Bible from high school. And I actually found that like my highlighted passages that I had through Genesis were like the, the passages I wanted. So I went ahead and brought it. Um, you have when Cain and Abel um, have their uh, altercation and Cain kills Abel, uh, it says again, uh, you know, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. Then you have Cain and Abel in chapter four of Genesis and verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He's driven away from the presence. The kingdom is slipping out of the hands of humanity. Uh, we move along, and you can just tell. Like right after that, you have the descendants of uh, their descendants, and and you have uh, Noah. What happens with Noah? Why does God uh, call out to Noah to build an ark? What is the problem? Wickedness claim the whole earth, really. The, the, the language, this is the New American Standard Version, so if you're used to New King James, it might be a little different, or King James, uh, the authorized version. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God is sorry that he made this despicable creature who's decided that every thought of his heart is evil, but he finds Noah, and there's always this throughout the Old Testament, a kind of remnant of the righteous or somebody that God finds favor in. Noah is then found to have favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, and you have the creation of the ark. Um, to save a remnant of mankind and to uh, basically kind of a washing or a cleansing of the earth uh, to then start over uh, with man. This uh, death, dissolution, etc still kind of continues, even though God kind of tries to start over in a way. There's kind of a new Eden, right? They have vineyards, they're uh, drinking wine, but Noah decides he likes the wine a little bit too much. Uh, they're kind of returning back. There's kind of Edenic uh, things echoing there, uh, and things still just continue to go downhill. You get the Tower of Babel uh, eventually, which is another replay of what? Adam and Eve doing what? Eating, trying to be God, trying to be God right? So humanity, like, I want to try to be God again. So I'm going to build this tower. Uh, then you get to where, how God's going to prepare a way for the kingdom to be able to be, uh, you say, substantiated or uh, available to mankind in some kind, I don't want to say permanent way, but way in which uh, he's going to create a covenant so that God can come close to man and bring him back slowly back to the garden. So it starts out with Abraham, right? And the promise uh, to Abraham. Uh, what is the promise that God makes to Abraham? He will make his seed as numerous as the sands on the seashores and the stars in the sky. And he says that to Abraham a lot, or Abram at first and then Abraham. So there's different ways of saying that, but that's the kind of classic way of saying it. God is going to bless Abraham uh, in chapter 12, right? When God calls him, he says, go from your country, from everything that you know, from your father's house uh, to a land I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Uh, and then and later in verse three, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, this is something later Paul will grab on to and make an argument about Christ uh, with, with the seed comment that's later in Genesis. But now we have God preparing a way for the kingdom to come uh, to be present on earth, right? He has to create and call it a particular group of people. Uh, obviously, with um, Noah and the Tower of Babel, humanity, on when it's left to its own devices, doesn't seem to really <laughs> find its way back. Uh, it just kind of Things might be okay in certain areas. In other places, things are just imploding. So God has to intervene. God has to create a way. So he makes this promise to Abraham. 
Uh, there's a lot of you know back and forth about Abraham learning what it means to have faith and trust in God. Uh, and then have the same kind of promises made to Jacob in Genesis 35. Uh, and it's also at the end of Genesis, I'm trying to do a 30,000 foot view here. Um, you have the great patriarchs. So after Jacob, you have who's the son of Jacob that becomes most important at the end of Genesis? Joseph, quite a uh, Christological figure, someone who's betrayed, the favorite of the father who's betrayed, put into a pit, uh, they sold him for money. Uh, he's enslaved, he's taken to, you know, into slavery in Egypt, and then eventually he saves his own you know, brothers and continues the promise that God first made to Abraham. And Genesis ends in this fascinating uh, way. Does anyone remember how Genesis ends? Right, so, so it actually, uh, they, they stay in Egypt there. He, he oh, dies. No, right. He gives a command for his bow. Exactly. To right. Joseph, believing the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says, you know, you're going to bury my bones here, place me in a coffin in Egypt, but I know that I'm, my bones will be placed eventually in the promised land, which is eventually um, occurs. The next uh, real important event is... How much time do you all want to give? Can you give me like 10 more minutes and I can do Moses? Mm -hmm. Yes, good. Sorry, it took longer for me to get uh, going. So Exodus is then the next book. Genesis is kind of outlining um, the creation, fall, uh, the descent, uh, and then uh, into kind of dissolution and the effects of sin uh, for humanity. Uh, how the breaking of communion with God then breaks all of our relationships with each other such that even right the first murder is between two brothers um, to the Tower of Babel and then to God preparing a way for his kingdom to be able to be present because you know I'm getting to the, the divine liturgy is one way of talking about it is that it's a manifestation of the kingdom right we're saying blessed is the kingdom blessed is the reign and the rule of God that is present among us here because we've been gathered and we're going to see this especially as we look at Exodus how God operates in this way um, he's going to command tabernacle and he's actually with Moses uh, and the elders he's going to sit down and have a meal with them by food you know they are kicked out of Eden but God is going to call them up a mountainside, give them the law, kind of here's the basic rules and structure of the way that humanity needs to live. Uh, and this is the way that you need to be. And I'm also going to here, we're going to solidify this covenant with a meal. So the divine liturgy is uh, access to this kingdom that is a kingdom that God has been preparing from, you know, what was uh, intended with Adam and Eve, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, then that he was then basically preparing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and along the way he's doing little things of covenants, etc. with them. Uh, once you get to Moses, you're going to get the creation of a people that's going to become his people. That's the, the framework that we're eventually going to be able to, uh, in the kind of language of the church, to grow the flower of the Theotokos, who then was being able to be the... I don't like this word because it has, I think in modern English, weird resonances, but the receptacle or the kind of container, the ark, the temple of God. Um, it's here in Exodus, and I encourage you, I know, uh, at least read in David and Micah and Tim. Were you there too? Where we went where we went over Old Testament and specific time in Exodus this past year. Um, but Exodus, if you are starting to experience Orthodox worship, etc., you should just read through the book of Exodus, especially if you've never read the book of Exodus. It is not Leviticus. <laughs> so it might be a little bit more interesting because Leviticus, like, you're going to need to put in a lot of time to make Leviticus sing for you. Uh, I can't really get it there uh, yet for me. I gotta put some more time in. Uh, but Exodus has 
you're going to get, I mean, they've made Disney movies out of the story out of Exodus, right? Like uh, Moses, what was the name of that? Prince of Egypt? Yeah. Bad movie, if I remember correctly. Uh, why? Yeah, why? I don't know, because I don't like those kind of movies. <laughs> so uh, in Exodus, you have, um, I'm going to go right to basically after. I'm not going to do all the, the fun Moses uh, teeing off with the uh, Pharaoh and trying to uh, uh, work all of that out with the um, how God basically judges Egypt. But when we get to Exodus, if, if you only have a particular time with Exodus to read Exodus 19 through 24, you will find um, basically a kind of structure for how we approach and understand God uh, that is maybe not what the popular kind of modern North American Christian approach to God is, but it's something that's eminently scriptural and usually gets looked over for, you know, kind of rock band for Jesus. Um, when there's a different kind of scriptural form for worship and how to approach God. So, first off, uh, Exodus 19 and verse 5, you have the reason why God has brought Israel, uh, who is the, the offspring of uh, Joseph and his brothers, their captivity, their time in Egypt. God has brought them forth. He's brought them through the Red Sea. So if you think of the fathers, the way they read this, he's baptized them. He's now leading them, uh, kind of like our life is with them, where we have a kind of wandering through the desert. Uh, but God is feeding us with his manna. He is leading us. He's put uh, not only like a Moses, if you want to say like a bishop, but he's also put elders, and there will be elders that show up here, um, elder priests to basically kind of guide the people and help uh, give counsel to Moses and his brother Aaron. Um, and the people have come to Sinai, uh, and God is telling them now what all of this is about, why he's brought them here. And he says, um, uh, Mo Moses 19, <laughs> Exodus 19, uh, Israel has come to camp at uh, the wilderness of Sinai, and in verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Right? We're talking about God as king, dominion over all. All of the earth is the Lord's. He's not this kind of petty uh, fiefdom god of like just the Egyptians or just the Canaanites or something. He is the god over everything. And because of this, uh, because of what he's done in bringing you out of Egypt, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that Moses is to speak to Israel. So how is God going to accomplish creating a nation, uh, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests? Um, First, he basically uh, tells Moses, I'm going to give you the commandments, and it's going to be on top of this mountain. But before that, in verse 10 of 19, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they will, shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. I'm going to end right there. Do not go near a woman. <laughs> what? Because they have cooties? What, what, do you th what, what is going on here? What is God preparing Moses and the people for? Exodus. For Exodus? 
Well, for the, the commandments that he's going to give them, right? Because he's, he's brought them out of Egypt. They're, at the, they're out in uh, the wilderness of Sinai. So he's going to complete their exodus, as it were, by consecrating them to become uh, kings and priests and prophets. But how exactly, and before this is going to happen, he's telling them to prepare themselves, right? So here's one aspect about, uh, since we're just on the beginning part of the divine liturgy, is in order to say, like, blessed is the kingdom, there is an element of preparation or some kind of awareness that needs to be um, nurtured, instilled within us uh, when we're coming to the divine services. Uh, here you have, very specifically, and this is actually uh, not just the tradition of the church, but uh, the basic kind of tradition and kind of canonical mindset, we can talk about canons at another time because I don't want to get sidetracked, um, that the basic tradition of the church is that there's no relations between a man and a woman the night before communion. And a lot of that basic understanding is you can already see rooted here in Exodus that when you are to come and meet the Lord on the mountain, you do not go near a woman. Uh, this is, I mean, part of this is just simple mechanics of focus, time, what you're actually setting aside, what you're actually uh, paying attention to, where your heart is, all of that. Um, did you hear growing up that the, basically the Old Testament was all about outward stuff and it really had nothing to do with the heart? Did any of you all hear that? Because I certainly did. If you were spared that, thank God. <laughs> uh, that is just, not, I, I don't know what scriptures they were reading, but the Old Testament is very clear about the actual inner state, uh, the inner quality of um, Israel. So this happens, the Lord visits their, the mountain, they have prepared themselves, smoke ascends, like, uh, smoke of a furnace, the mountain quakes violently, there's a sound of the trumpet, it grows louder and louder. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, because uh, after Moses goes up in the mountain and he goes, go down and warn the people, right? There's this sense of that this mountain has been set aside, it is holy, uh, it is something uh, blessed, consecrated, right? God has asked them to consecrate themselves, and this mountain itself, this particular place, is consecrated. Um, and the Orthodox Church, we still very much have this idea that there is consecrated space, right? The altar, uh, if you did not know this, is to only be touched by ordained. Uh, it is not something that, you know, ask somebody to go clean the altar and then just kind of go in there and start wiping the altar, move the gospel book over. That, that in the Orthodox Church, there's particular ways in which we approach the holy. Uh, you don't just kind of waltz into the altar. Uh, you'll notice here that even uh, Mark, who has, you know, will have liturgical questions from time to time, uh, if he comes in, he kind of goes through the side door and said he could come through because he has a reason to be there and he's been blessed as a reader. Um, but there's this sense that that space is a particular space that's set aside, that's consecrated. It's where we're going to receive uh, communion from. Uh, it's where the gospel book resides. It's where uh, even the tabernacle, that's what we call the, uh, the kind of um, the little church that's basically sitting on the altar. If you ever wonder what that gold uh, thing is on the altar, that is where a pre-consecrated uh, body of our Lord resides. So that is part of the reason why the practice is when you cross the middle of the church, it's not just people like crossing to the altar, but it's actually the presence of Christ there on the altar in his, um, in his body that has been broken for us. Uh, obviously in the Catholic church, they have uh, the experience of the exposition, uh, the sacrament and those things, which is not uh, an Orthodox practice. But so let me get to, um, Exodus 24, and then we can pick up after Exodus 24 next week. Um, just throw in, old school Catholics will cross themselves every time they see a church because Christ is present. Orthodox too. If you're going to an Orthodox country and there's pious people inside like the, the bus that you're in and you're going by a church, all the pious people will cross themselves. So you can see who's pious and who's not pious. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. There's a great story about a priest and a Protestant that were on a train in Europe, and, and, and the priest, 
love this story. I'm sorry. Hey, go for but, it. But the, the minister said, you know, why do you keep doing that? He said, because Christ is present in the church. And the Protestant minister looked at him and said, if I really believed that, I would fall on my hands and knees every time I cross paths in the church. And it's like, yeah. So did he do that? <laughs> no, 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 he, no, he didn't, but it just, I didn't, yeah, yeah. It he really just, hit me hard. Yeah. It's like, if you really believe this. Yeah. So you have after um, Moses goes up on the mountain and we have, you know, the famous, the Ten Commandments, which my kids are all about the Ten Commandments for some reason right now. I think they're going over it in school. Um, and then you have the basic kind of uh, first run of going over the law because you'll get more with Leviticus, um, get the feasts, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and then you have in chapter 24 of Exodus, uh, you have the uh, Moses telling um, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders to come up the mountain to the Lord and shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. So he goes back down. He tells them what the basic law is that God has revealed because Moses wrote this all down. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And then Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar and he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. There's a lot of fascinating stuff. We do not sprinkle blood on people. Uh, <laughs> uh, however, we have all been washed in the blood with, through baptism. Uh, so we have been, uh, if you want to say, sprinkled with blood already. Uh, it's just the blood of Jesus has been applied to us. Uh, and we have already uh, agreed to follow the book of the covenant, right? We've agreed to follow uh, the law of God, which uh, we see perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ. And then this is the, the, this fascinating little few verses, and we'll stop after I talk a little bit about this. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw, they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. They see God about halfway up the mountain. And they see under his feet, I always found this fascinating, a pavement of sapphire. This is a theme that they will be picked up by the prophets later on. Um, but they sat with him, they saw him, and they ate and they drank. The kingdom uh, kind of put this a different spin on it. It's not right in the eating and drinking but uh, in a physical way, but it is eating and drinking of the spiritual banquet that God spreads before us, right? We've entered to the holy mountain. We've been baptized. We are wandering in the wilderness, but we've come now into the church, right? And we hear, blessed is the kingdom, the kingdom that God has been preparing for us uh, from our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, he is brought Moses as brought up Moses as a prophet and as a king. Uh, in fact, that is the way that he's talked about in a lot of the early uh, church, the prophet and king and Moses. You see all these aspects in him. Uh, and he has now sat down, God has sat down with them on the side of the mountain after they've prepared themselves and he's going to eat and drink with them. So when we are thinking about the kingdom uh especially the very beginning of the liturgy, we can call to mind what God has already done, how we have access to this, 
this kind of awesome mystery that we will sit at the table with him and that he will feed us. Um, and this is just kind of the beginning of what it means that the kingdom is now. Uh, we're saying blessed is the kingdom. We are, uh, it's kind of an epiphany of the kingdom, right? It's a theophany. Uh, how would you define theophany? Manifestation of God. Manifestation of God. Revelation. Revelation. The divine liturgy, when we come together as the people of God, God is in our midst. Right? We even said this. Christ is in our midst. He is and never shall be. He is going uh, to be present with us in a particular way uh, in the divine liturgy. Uh, he's always present with us, right? If we've been sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed into his body. But when we come to divine liturgy, uh, we are encountering the kingdom afresh. If we've prepared ourselves, if we are ready to sit down uh, at that table with him. And it's a glorious thing. The, um, we're going to continue. Uh, well, I want to pick up a little bit more and looking at the tabernacle and the presence of God in the tabernacle. Um, and then talk, uh, we're going to break down this phrase a little bit more and the next time uh, talking about blessedness. But also I want to talk a little bit, kind of give a sketch of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because already at the beginning of liturgy, we are declaring who God is right? The kingdom of Jesus Christ? No. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we'll talk a little bit, use Paul as our basic kind of uh, guide there uh, to talk about it and the way that the worship service itself is structured. Um, does anyone have any questions or anything? Okay, we'll end there for tonight.